Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 206, the third installment in our series on LA creatives, Paul Petrunia, founder of the website Archinect, talked about his upbringing in the Canadian prairies, how his architectural education served his subsequent career, and his influences inside and outside of architecture. Check out our latest episode with Paul to hear his thoughts. So we're here at the uh, Archinect World Headquarters with Paul Petrunia. Thanks, Paul, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, I am Paul Petrunia. I am the founder of Archinect and the director of Archinect. I started Archinect in 1997 while I was at a student, uh, while I was a student at, at SciArc. Um, I started designing websites in 1995 when the internet was uh, very fresh. Not too many people were online. Um, I was actually at the University of Oregon at the time. Um, entirely self-taught, I did a lot of uh, view source codes back then to figure out how websites were made. And, um, and then I started just building websites for myself and uh, for the University of Oregon. Then I did a few websites for SciArc. And in 1997, I, I just saw the potential of the web for the architecture industry. So I created Archinect, which was designed as a place to connect architects. That's where the name comes from. So um, that started in 97, and it started as something quite different back then than it is now. And then it kind of became something closer to what it is now in 1999, when we introduced uh, the discussion forum, uh, job board, and a, a large team of, of uh, editorial and news contributors. So what was the, um, the mission of, for Archinect when you started out? What was the, the purpose of you starting and what did you want to accomplish? When I started it, I wanted to leverage the power of the internet as I saw it back then, which was really, this was like internet, uh, Netscape 1.0 years. Um, a few people were online at that time, but I recognized a huge potential in um, bringing together architects. Um, at the time, I was especially interested in bringing together designers and people from other industries as well, so that there could be a lot of uh, cross-industry influence and uh, increased awareness. I also really, I was, I was very much inspired by the lack of access to contemporary architecture at the time. Um, as a child, growing up a teenager, I always wanted to find out what was going on in the world of architecture because I was obsessed with architecture, but there wasn't any outlet. So I literally had to go to the university, the local university in the city I was growing up in, to look at you know, Architecture Magazine, Canadian Architect Magazine, um, Architectural Record. Those were not available on the newsstands. And that was the only way I could find out what, what, what was actually interesting that was going on in contemporary architecture. So I felt like the internet is, a, is an opportunity to to really get that out into the open, to, to make architecture, the world of architecture less cliquey. And so that's very interesting because during my research, I found a quote uh, from you where you said, I wanted to make architecture loosen up a little. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, it was, it felt like a real uh, exclusive club at, at, the, at the time. There was, um, there wasn't any kind of level of public engagement in terms of architectural discourse. Uh, projects were published in paper. Um, there wasn't really an opportunity for the public to engage in that. I imagine at the time there were local uh, professional chapters that and and groups that facilitated that type of engagement and communication about about these new projects and about the direction of the industry. But that wasn't um, available to anybody outside of that. That club. So I wanted I wanted it to I wanted to basically open the doors to other people, and I think as a result of that, the industry would be forced to loosen its grips on how its world is is controlled. So looking back at that idea, twenty plus years after, 
would you say that you succeeded or you and other online media outlets, because there's now hundreds, if not thousands of architecture blogs and design websites and all that stuff. What's your take on the state of the architecture world now, especially looking at how it is presented online? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's a completely different world today than it was back then in terms of uh, awareness and interest in contemporary architecture and architects. Um, going back to the early years of Archonnect, in 1999, I, I started this new monthly uh, feature on Archonnect to, to help facilitate this kind of uh, growing awareness of architecture by inviting some of the top graphic designers and web designers in the world to, um, to create splash pages for Archonnect. At the time, we called them cover pages. This was during a time when splash pages were actually something that people expected on a website. Since then, we realized they're just an unnecessary uh, additional step to get to where you want to go. But that was that was really exciting because one thing I noticed, I was very engaged in the web design community back then. It was a, it was a super exciting time where, you know, 14-year-olds from Finland were kind of coming out of the out of the woodwork producing some of the most amazing graphic design that, that anybody's ever seen that nobody would have seen if if not for the internet. So I recognize that a lot of these designers were, were very influenced by architectural form, but their access to architecture was the same as what mine was as a teenager. It was just limited to little snippets that they would catch. Um, so by inviting them to to interpret the world of architecture through these cover page designs. It gave them more access to the world of architecture to become involved in this uh, project on Archonnect. It also opened up the eyes to architects to see how these super talented graphic and web designers were perceiving the built form, the built, the built uh, architectural form. Um, and so that, that really um, brought in a new type of audience. And there was a lot of cross-pollination happening between, mm -hmm. between the design disciplines. Uh, since then, Archonnect was, in the early years, you know, Archonnect was around before there was a, the term blog was invented. So we had a news, a news feed that uh, basically acted like what a blog was later, you know, was later to be coined. Um, it was before any of the social media. There was no Twitter or Facebook or anything. So a lot of people used Archonnect kind of as a social network. Mm -hmm. at the time, especially in our discussion forum. That was the place where, where architects could come together and talk about things. Then the social media revolution happened and um, the activity changed. Some people took their conversations to more curated social groups on social media. And then um, Archonnect's discussion forum became more of kind of an architecture specific resource for architects to come together on a less of a social uh, basis, but more of a professional basis. But going back to your question, I know I'm kind of jumping around here, um, around, I think around 2006, 2007, other architecture websites started popping up, and um, and then and then a lot of other mainstream publications started recognizing the popularity of architecture to the public. So you know you can go to websites like you know Vogue or uh, W Magazine or you know all kinds of publications that you would find at an airport magazine stand, and now they cover a lot of architecture. Um, they never did that before. Mm -hmm. I, I credit the internet. Um, to opening up that that interest and expanding that interest of, of uh, progressive architecture to the mainstream. So I want to go back a little bit to uh, your childhood now. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us uh, about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid? Um, yeah, I, I'm realizing every day that I'm a lot like my eight-year-old son um, at, when I was a kid, which means uh, I was extremely, maybe overly curious and talkative. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Calgary, Alberta. I'm still a Canadian citizen, even though I've been living in Los Angeles for longer than I've ever lived in Canada. Um, I've got a little bit of geographic uh, uh, confusion, I feel like right now, nationalistic uh, confusion. Um, I don't necessarily feel like I'm a citizen of either these days, but um, so I grew up in, in Canada. While I was young living in Alberta, I actually was very uh, involved in ballet. I was a ballet dancer. When I was quite young, I, I stopped when I was 12, when I realized it wasn't cool at all amongst my friends. <laughs> so I got into sports instead. But um, when I was dancing ballet, I, I, was, um, I was practicing at the University of Lethbridge, which was an Arthur Erickson building. And it's 
uh, an amazing um, example of brutalist architecture. And it's the long bridge across the. It's like a long slab, canyon, just right? sitting in the uh, in the foothills, or the uh, they call them the coolies in mm -hmm. in Lethbridge. And that building was extremely influential in in how I perceived architecture, and definitely cemented, uh, I guess. Uh, Pardon the pun. My my uh, <laughs> love of brutalist architecture. Mm -hmm. Just uh, passionate about brutalism. Uh, amazing building. So that I think that sparked my interest in architecture. We we moved to Victoria, British Columbia, shortly after that when I was twelve, um, and my mother was an interior designer. So I would often follow her by my my own interest to these projects. So I was I was getting really interested in the design of houses, and um, that just you know continued to push me towards architecture. So was there ever a consideration of other careers, or was architect all the way? When I was twelve years old, I told my parents that when I grew up, I'm going to be an architect, and I'm going to have a firm in Los Angeles because I loved the work that was going on in Los Angeles. We used to go down to California quite a bit uh, just uh, for family vacations. Um, it's almost, I almost uh, fulfilled that that vision. I don't run an architecture firm, but I do run a practice in, in LA. Um, yeah, so I, I had never really considered any other, any other career. Interesting. And so on that, you and I have a similar path in that we both have architecture degrees and decided to take on a completely different path. Mm -hmm. How did that happen for you? Um, you know, it's not something I would have ever predicted. If the internet had not been invented, I'm sure I would be sitting in front of uh, a screen with like Autodesk or Rhino right now. Um, the I loved architecture throughout school. I loved architecture school. Um, there just seemed to be an opportunity. I was just, it was the right time when the internet came around and I became so passionate and engaged in web design um, from both a, conceptual point and also a uh, practical practical uh, place um, I it just pulled me into into that world so I, I felt at the time that I, I absolutely had to pursue the potential of, of the internet and it and I really kind of leveraged my experience um, from architecture school and my understanding of architecture and how things are built to apply to kind of um, look at a, a new way of, of building uh, websites and a community online. Because I, I found there to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of similarities between architecture and web design in terms of like user interface design and, and uh, actually design like the formal structure of, of a website. So we hear a lot, it's kind of a common thought that architecture prepares to pretty much any career. Mm -hmm. um, in the creative world or otherwise, what's your take on that? I, I can't uh, speak about other uh, fields of study because I only really studied architecture um, after a couple of years of studying math and, and sciences um, at the University of Victoria. But the study of architecture is so um, broad and it teaches such a um, kind of a self-driven, disciplined, approach to solving problems, which really can be applied to any any part of life or any other career. Um, we we both went, or no, you, you didn't go to SIARC. No, uh, I, I, I nearly I, went to SIARC. You Sire. nearly went to SIARC. Um, so I went to SIARC, which I'm sure is a lot like many other schools um, that offer a very kind of self-driven creative curriculum. But that SIARC really gave me an opportunity to explore my interests and to kind of craft my own uh, school curriculum around those interests. So um, that experience was especially valuable to um, to allow me to pursue a career outside of the traditional practice of architecture. And a lot of my friends from school have also done the same. So was your transition into a different field, although related, very conscious or it, more, it happened more serendipitously? Well, immediately after leaving SciArc, I started a company called Low Country Guidance with uh, three of my friends uh, and business partners. This was during the dot-com boom in 1999. There was a ton of money out there and everybody just wanted to give their money to young creatives. 
especially if they had experience and skills in uh, web. But we, our work was not limited to web design. That was kind of my department. Um, I, my partners, Clancy, Will, and Mark, specialized in graphic design, motion graphics, product design, furniture design, um, and architecture. And our projects touched on all of those different fields. Uh, and there was a lot of crossover. So it was a very exciting um, couple of years where you know the four of us who were all extremely motivated designers working very hard with zero business business uh, experience. So the business <laughs> wasn't that uh, sustainable financially. Mm -hmm. So after a few years of doing uh, Low Country Guidance, I decided to embark on my own um, with uh, a company called Extra Medium, which is still our umbrella corporation that kind of Arcanex sits under. Um, and we would just do uh, web design and web development and brand development. And that lasted for a few years during Low Country Guidance and Extra Medium. Uh, I, I was running Arcanex on the side as a as my own personal project. Mm -hmm. uh, it was never meant to be a, a profitable business, but it just ended up happening. Um, it, it evolved as one. And I think if I started from the beginning with the goal of making our connected business, I don't know if it would have actually happened. I see. We talked a little bit earlier about the uh, mission of the original Arconnect to be to create this community uh, and online access to information that wasn't possible to access uh, otherwise or very difficult to access. What are the differences between the, the Archonnect of that time and what it is today? Or is that mission still very much present? The mission hasn't changed. Um, but the but there have been many things that have changed quite a bit. Um, since then, our job board has become the, uh, the the biggest job board for the architecture industry, uh, for the English language. Um, so that is a big part of our business. And um, because of that, issues of employment play a role in our editorial as well. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, you know, the, the world of architectural employment, you know, job boards, recruitment is, is really about connecting architects together. It's about connecting firms and people. Um, so that is consistent with our mission. Um, we have begun a new initiative to start taking a deeper look at the, the people behind the work um, by, by visiting studios and, and uh, looking at the, their workplace, talking about the, the process behind their work. Um, the kind of stuff that, that is um, more interesting to architects than a general public and also adds valuable context to the work that we all see every day mm -hmm. on Arcanact and all the other architecture blogs. And then there's also the change that occurred as, the, as social media hit the scene. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Arcanact was the primary social media outlet for architects prior to Facebook and Twitter mm -hmm. and Instagram. Um, and now everybody has their own opportunity to create their own their own private and, and public networks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's a much more um, independently curated web now than it was before. I see. And so how does Arconnect, um, or how did it handle the transition to a more social media oriented world? And how has that made your work more complicated or easier? Can you speak to that a little more? Um, well, we have never really jumped fully into the world of social media like most other brands have, and um, for better or worse. Um, our focus has always been on the content that we create for Arconnect.com, um, but we do, we do recognize the, the value of social media, especially using each social network in a way that is very appropriate to the type of audience that it attracts. So we have actually just started uh, the process of, of hiring somebody to work with us full time that will be managing uh, social media exclusively to, to better um, engage those audiences with, with the kind of work that we're featuring on, on Arconnect. Mm -hmm. And so what I've noticed in, uh, in social media uh, as part of my own endeavors is that there's a lot of 
I'll call it curated lifestyles um, uh, that are not necessarily a reflection of what people are, the reality of people's lives. And uh, I want to tie that back into another quote of yours that I found and where you said, I think people will soon tire of newness and will want to revert to thoughtfulness. Speaking of um, the way news and information is um, spread on the internet mm -hmm. and that the new and fresh is more valuable than the thoughtful. Mm -hmm. So how far do you think we are from this pivotal moment or do you think we'll never get there? It's very hard to say, but I do still stand behind that, that comment, even though I, I don't remember exactly when I, when I said that. I think I may have been, I may have uh, said that in association with uh, our recently launched print project, Ed, which is um, a response to how people are engaging with media these days, especially architectural media and writing. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I've found very, very frustrating personally is that, you know, as a publisher, the, the business of publishing depends on traffic, and online publishing specifically uh, is um, depends on the profitability, depends on page views. It, when it comes to advertising, uh, display advertising, display advertising is not uh, our top priority. But that's that's the reality, and and then the solution to that, which we see every day, is sensationalism. Um, Lots of eye candy, clickbait. Clickbait. I yeah. mean, so I don't, I don't think that that is a good thing, a good direction for the world to be going in. Um, but it's not something that we can just completely ignore. If you mm -hmm. completely ignore that, you, um, you're going to start losing. So, um, so our response to that was to start a print publication uh, called Ed, which is a quarterly publication. The second issue actually just got sent to the printers yesterday, so that's going to be available pretty soon and it's it's a way to to give a higher quality of editorial the kind of stuff that we've published on our connect in the past but just ends up quickly getting buried by by you know slideshows and and quick bites that that people like to get online mm -hmm. so um it's a way of archiving the better content and hopefully creating eventually kind of a time capsule of where we are in architecture um, because it's pretty hard to see where we were in architecture 10 years ago online right now mm -hmm. because those type unless you go to you know the internet archive or something but it's a pretty limited resource in terms of uh, really getting the full full view of what was going on back then so yeah no that that is a that's a way of kind of capturing more thoughtfulness so is it content from the website that you're publishing in that in the magazine it's actually content that would have been in the website okay but it's content that we are now instead putting in the magazine and then also creating summaries of that of that content on the website mm -hmm. so we can provide enough for somebody to get enough as much as they want to get online which is usually less than what they want to get in print mm -hmm. but then they're given the opportunity to to uh, to buy a copy and and um, and it's it's an alternative way to, to financially support rather than ads we don't have any ads in in ed um, so you buy the copy, you get like 200 pages of really great editorial based around a specific theme. And that's kind of, I feel like where we were 20 years ago mm -hmm. and I'm missing that. And um, so it's an attempt to get back there, but the, the, the world of print is a very, very difficult world. Um, so it's uh, work every, every day as a team, we're figuring out ways to, to make it sustainable mm -hmm. and part of that is is uh, we're getting sponsors you know firms and schools are starting to sponsor the 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 costs behind this because they see the value in this for the industry i see and so what's the uh, editorial line of that publication the it started out as an experiment in creating a hybrid publication the hybrid nature of the publication is um has not yet reached its full potential the idea was that it would it would be a print magazine that would work very closely with the website so that content could complement each other both online and and in print um, but uh, besides that each issue is based on a theme that um, is developed by by Nicholas Carodi and myself Nicholas Carodi is um, the editor-in-chief of Ed he used to be the editor um, the managing editor for Arconnect before he left to to uh, get his master's degree at Columbia, where he currently is. So he's working on Ed while, while studying uh, to mm -hmm. get his master's degree. Um, so the first theme was the architecture of architecture, 
very kind of self-referential look at, at what, what uh, architecture really means. And the second issue is the architecture of disaster. And that is taking a look at, I feel like when I, when I spoke about a time capsule, I feel like right now we're living at a time when people often consider disaster to be um, a theme that keeps on popping up. Um, and disaster can be considered in this issue in a number of different ways from environmental disaster, political disaster, cultural disaster, um, responses to disasters in architecture. It, it seems like a very topical subject as well, um, uh, particularly to me because I've been reading a lot of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book. Mm. Uh, so anti-fragile skin in the game, mm -hmm. and I'm currently reading uh, Fooled by Randomness, which mm -hmm. deal they all deal with the idea of uh, uh, low probability disastrous events, mm. um, and it comes from the financial world, but it really applies to everything. It's a very refreshing take on um, how humans perceive risk and mm. deal with disasters, and how uh, some people who don't quite grasp how things work get basically wiped out. Um, very interesting thoughts. So mm. I don't know if you're going to have any of that in this issue, but it would be interesting to... Uh, oh, too bad we uh, we should have talked about this uh, many months ago so that <laughs> we could have incorporated uh, for you or, or some of these ideas into it. I don't... Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very rich issue with a lot of different content that, um, that I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on those topics. So I want to uh, switch to another uh, topic. And uh, do you have any mentors... I have a number of idols, but I have to say I've never had a mentor, which is um, I've always been um, ex an extremely, probably overly independent person. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was one of those kind of students in architecture school that would refuse help, you know, <laughs> with uh, during final review time, um, just because I always just wanted to do everything myself and take full responsibility for my for my uh, mistakes and full responsibility for my successes. And um, so as a result, no, I've never had a mentor. Um, in hindsight, I, I wish I did. Um, and you know that if I did have a mentor, it, uh, I think it would have been a somebody that was, uh, that's really great at managing teams because I think that's been my biggest, uh, my biggest challenge in growing my business. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a very individually driven person. So when I work with with uh, you know uh, staff and freelancers, it's um, it's kind of a full control or or completely hands off approach that I take um, because of my nature. So mm -hmm. yeah, I wish I could have uh, taken on a mentor like that. And so you. First answered that question by saying you have idols or people you admire. Mm -hmm. Who would those be? Um, well, probably my biggest idol of all time is uh, Stanley Kubrick, who I really consider to be um, one of the most talented, creative forces of, of our time. And I, I think his work could be easily compared to the work of an architect. Um, I think he his attention to his attention to detail and his the value he placed on every single aspect of a project he worked on was very inspiring to me mm -hmm. and and the end products of all of his all of his work was uh i would i would i could say that they're they were life-changing uh experiencing his you know his films any architects I really idolized the way that Frank Gehry um, began his his practice. I think he was um, he had a an extremely kind of focused vision for for what he did and what he wanted to become. Um, he intentionally shut down his furniture making business, which was blowing up in the early days because he did not want to be a furniture designer. He stayed mm -hmm. he stayed very focused. Um, he re he's received a ton of criticism throughout his career. But that hasn't really affected who, he's, who he um, has been as an architect, and I think you know his success is evident now as as his career enters the late stages. Uh, his specific projects, um, his work is not is not my favorite. Um, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the work he does, but I wouldn't consider his buildings to be my favorite buildings. Uh, but I do have 
a lot of admiration for him as a as a as an architect and, and a visionary. So, what what would you have in in terms of favorite buildings that you can speak to? Favorite buildings, um, the the work of Herzog and Dimron is mm -hmm. uh, is almost everything they do. I love um, the the work of um, John Portman uh, is is interesting because his work on some levels does not appeal to me at all. Um, because sometimes his work just strikes me as just pure cheese, but other times it's just absolutely uh, mind-blowing. Um, and his, his Bonaventure uh, Hotel in downtown LA is one of my favorite buildings. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that also, it, it reminds me a little bit of Stanley Kubrick's um, work, which may contribute to that. Um, I love the work of Pat Cow Architects in Vancouver, and um, I really am intrigued by their lack of self-promotion. Um, they, do, they do stunning work and they really don't seem to push themselves out there too much. They tend to shy away from it, which is very interesting. It seems to be a common theme among the most talented Canadian architects. Because you have Pat mm -hmm. Cow, you have McKay Lyons, Sweet Apple, and uh, Shim Sutcliffe in Toronto mm -hmm. that are extremely talented architects, but seem to have more of a craft craftsmen approach to making architecture and just taking their time and not partaking in the superficial aspects of architecture and promotion. Which I have to say I think is very representative of, of Canadian culture. I think that uh, Canadians tend to be like that. Um, I remember whenever I would go back home as a student uh, to Canada, I knew I was in Canada as soon as It was dead silent while you're in the middle of a crowd. You know, this is a very, it's a very quiet kind of head down type of of uh, work hard culture in, in Canada. People are very conservative with how they live, not conservative like from a political perspective, mm -hmm. but um, it's, a, it's a humble type of culture. And I think that that's expressed through the architects that, that you just mentioned. Yeah, that would make some sense. I never thought about it that way, but uh, I guess if you, I, we've both live in, lived in the States and it's something I've noticed as well. Toronto might be one of the, the least um, Uh, representative examples of that mm -hmm. type because Toronto's more it's a very big city and yeah. it's probably a little more loud and less less uh, quiet and, mm -hmm. and modest as the rest of the country that's probably true as well so how did you end up in Los Angeles well besides my this vision I had when I was 12 that I was going to live here um, which I, I do feel kind of subconsciously led me here mm -hmm. but uh, SciArc was just on my radar and I ended up choosing to go to the University of Oregon initially because I was I was um, really passionate about sustainable design and the university of oregon back in the 90s was one of the only programs in the in the country that had a, a good reputation for a, a strong focus on sustainable design uh, after a couple years there though i was like okay this is feeling a little bit too like crunchy granola for me at this point. I feel like I, I learned enough about about uh, approaches to sustainable design and designing environmentally friendly buildings and uh, and I wanted to take that and, and, and start experimenting and have some having some fun. So I decided to uh, transfer to SciArc in LA, which was always kind of uh, my, my first to second choice in the beginning. And that was just, you know, a totally life-changing experience, just the, the environment there and the type of education and the opportunities that I was given to, to really push my, my creativity. And I sensed that that was heavily due to the school itself, but also partially due to the, um, the lifestyle in Southern California. I, mm -hmm. think, I think there's a reason why every car company's design team are based in Southern California. It, it really, the, the constant sunshine, the nice weather, the, um, The active lifestyle it really contributes to a healthy state of mind mm -hmm. and for me personally i i like to I, i tend to get creative when i'm active and i'm mountain biking or um, out doing things outside and there's no better place than that than southern california i'm constantly amazed at the variety of landscapes in such a small territory like you drive a hundred miles in any direction, you'll go through two, three, four completely different landscapes from the desert to the green lush coast. And I always found that fascinating. I've never seen that anywhere else. It's true. And you have to spend some, some real time in, in uh, Southern California to understand that. 
Um, so many people love to bash LA because of their, you know, one or two trips to Disneyland with their parents or, you know, their trip to their weekend trip to LA where they spend half the time on Hollywood Boulevard, which has got to be one of the most horrible places in the city. Um, but yeah, it's an incredible city that, um, speaking of landscapes, you, know, you can take a tram in Palm Springs up to the mountains and in that process of taking that gondola up to the top of the hill, you actually go through the equivalent of variety of landscapes ranging from southern Baja, California, all the way to Alaska. And that's just within one short stretch of, of land in the California desert. And you're the second person to mention that to me in a few days. Really? Yeah. It's, it's well, you have to go do it. Yeah. It's in the works. At some point it will happen. I want to go back to your career, not necessarily specifically Archinect, but mm -hmm. more generally speaking, um, and talk about taking risks. Mm -hmm. And what are the biggest risks you've ever taken? At first, I was thinking of starting a company right out of school, but honestly, I had nothing to lose at that at that time and everything to gain. So it wasn't much of a risk. But I think um, probably my the biggest risk I took was when I decided to stop to shut down Extra Medium, which was our web design development company, and focus all of our energy into Archinect as a business because um, I was very unsure of you know, what, what was going to happen as a result of that. I, I had never treated Archinect as a business up until that time. Mm -hmm. So um, I really waited a while until I felt confident about, about doing that. And I, I can't look back. Um, you know, I don't have, I have zero regrets about doing that. I think it was the best move. Was this. there, uh, in that time when you, you decided to take that jump, mm -hmm. was there a lot of fear um, or worry that it might not work, that you had to overcome? There was, especially because um, about a year and a half after that, or within the next two years of, of doing that, I got married and then we had our first child mm -hmm. and, you know, life was get, getting serious. You know, I went, it was a fairly quick, I mean, in, in, I started uh, dating my wife in 2002 and still, you know, we were single, out going out all the time. It was, it was very like, you know, but once you start including marriage and kids, you know, and uh, things get real and uh, the risks you take end up falling onto, you know, others, you know, people are dependent on, on me. So I had to start getting pretty serious about, about um, making sure that it's going to be a sustainable business. And, and it was, so it worked. Well, we're glad it did. So on the other side of talking about risk, um, I also like to ask about failures. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the failures you've had to deal with and what were the lessons you've learned from it? Failures are extremely important to everybody, I think. I think failing is the best way to learn. And, um, and I look for opportunities to fail just as often as I look for opportunities to, to succeed. Um, but the, the opportunities that I look to to fail are, are like experiments. We do a lot of experiments at Archinect. Um, mm -hmm. I would consider Ed, our print publication, to be an experiment, one at a much larger scale than um, previous experiments. Mm -hmm. And we gave ourselves one year to, to see if this is something that we could turn into a sustainable initiative. Mm -hmm. um, and we are now at the second issue and we're continuing to investigate that. It would be great if we can. And if we can't, I guess that could be considered a failure, but in my opinion, it would be considered a really valuable learning experience where we where we invested a year of time into looking at um, creating an alternative uh, platform for architectural journalism by uh, learning about the print industry. We take on everything about it. We, we take on distribution, we take on marketing. We don't do the printing. We have a company in Canada that does the printing, very high quality printing. Um, but we've done everything on our own um, intentionally so that we can learn from it. Um, if a failure involves learning about something, it's not really so much a failure. It's an expensive lesson. It's yeah, or or it's or sometimes it's a cheap lesson, mm -hmm. you know, because school costs a lot of money these days. Yeah, and uh, failing at a bunch of things is could be considered an alternative education. I, I can't agree more with you, um, and it seems like this is a, a common feeling amongst creatives is that failure is part of the process. And uh, the sooner we can embrace it and learn to deal with it, the more uh, 
more potentially successful it can be down the road. Yeah, yeah. So I, I always encourage everybody to do what they feel is right. And if they fail, it's not a bad thing. They're going to take they're going to take their the lessons from that and apply it to something else, which will have a much better chance of su at succeeding. Mm -hmm. And there's also another thought that uh, I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, and I don't know how true that is, but it rings true and it's probably close to reality is that most of everything mankind has ever thought up thought of is wrong, mm -hmm. and it's uh, the learning from. Uh, understanding mistakes that keep us going forward. And that's mm -hmm. why, as a species, we're still alive, right? Absolutely. Um, and it's also the, 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 the premise behind the scientific method is that mm -hmm. every theory is a theory that's uh, waiting to be falsified. Mm -hmm. Because it can never be proven true, it can only be proven wrong. Mm -hmm. But until we get a better understanding of, or a new theory, mm -hmm. then it's, it's the going the uh, the accepted um, reality. So I thought I find those uh, those thoughts fascinating because mm -hmm. we've evolved as a species um, from failure, basically, mm -hmm. and trial and error, and that's very interesting. Yeah, and architecture is a lot like that. You know, the scientific theory in that um, there is a lot of subjectivity involved, and every project. Every architectural project is a failure to some and a huge success to others. So it's uh, in the world of architecture, it's almost impossible to be a you know one hundred percent successful with anything that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so many variables to deal with. Yeah, so I think you know the key is to not even focus on on success or failure, but it's to focus on doing something that you truly believe in and are passionate about and um, feel is worth pursuing. That that. Uh, that deserves the time and attention and money that it takes to to uh, realize. And that's probably one of the hardest things to do is to uh, follow your gut, trust your gut, yeah. and follow a path that sometimes nobody has ever followed before. So. Yeah. Well, if you look at anybody that's successful, it's always they, it's always it always started as something that was passion that was passion fueled. Um, I, I like to. There's a podcast I really love listening to called uh, How I Built This. And it's uh, it's conversations with highly successful founders of, of businesses and companies, and it always starts out the same way. It's it's never it's never a, a drive to create something profitable or to make a make a lot of money. It's always to solve a problem that they are extremely passionate about solving. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about creativity. Um, what is the role of creativity in your life and your work? Well. Creativity in my work, um, I would say, mostly involves constant innovation and reevaluation and reinvention because our business exists within the internet, and the internet is changing at a pace that is unprecedented. Um, you know, who knows if we're even going to be looking at screens in a few years? You know, we could everything could be retinal um, or audio, or you don't know where it's going, and if you if you have the belief that things are not going to be changing and you can just continue doing what you're doing, that's fine. It's going to last for a little while, but it's not going to, it'll eventually expire. So the way that I kind of um, apply my creativity to my business is constantly looking for new ways to diversify our brand. Um, for example, right now we're, as I mentioned a couple times, we're doing our second issue of Ed. Um, and another experiment that we're about to launch is we're launching a line of coffee um, that is going to be uh, uh, themed uh, with brutal, uh, brutalist architecture. Um, and we are opening up a physical space in, in downtown's uh, arts district. And these are these are experiments, you know, to see where where these can can lead to. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the event space will be facilitating a number of different activities, including retail and pop up coffee. Um, but that space will offer an opportunity to explore how Arconnect's brand and activity can be extended into the real world outside of the internet. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to something really exciting. It could lead to the next big thing that we do. Or it could just be a, an experiment that we learn from for a few years and bring back to uh, Arconnect. So what would be your creative process like if, you have, if there's one? Or how do you 
come up with new ideas? What do you do in your life that enables you to be more creative than not? I, I really, when I was young, I was very, very into math and sciences, and mm -hmm. um, I didn't really um, explore my creativity until until I started uh, architecture school. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that I the way that I manage and develop creative ideas is is like through lists. I, I, I use um, Evernote, an app that I use on my computer and my phone, and I find that I contribute the most ideas to Evernote while I'm uh, hiking with my dog or on a mountain bike ride or skiing or doing something that where I, for some reason, I just open up part of my brain to, uh, to, that, to that, that place where ideas just start flowing. And I, and I note them in, in Evernote. And then when I sit down at work on my computer, I look through everything and then I start to strategize plans to start implementing one or more of those ideas and others, you know, I put aside and think, that was that was a crazy idea, but uh, fun mm -hmm. fun to read, but not not worth pursuing. And then uh, and then I start I start uh, outlining the plan uh, for for that idea in in writing and and sketches. And then I start working with the team to to try to to facilitate that. Interesting. So you just touched on most of your creative ideas coming to you when you're not working. Yeah. Um, what are the things you do outside of work to have fun, whether they contribute to your creativity or not? Um, I am an avid scuba diver, um, so I do a lot of a lot of diving. Um, spent a bunch of time in Indonesia, where the the uh, the reef system is is beyond anything that that exists anywhere else in the world. It's really it's like an alternative reality under under, mm -hmm. and one of the best things about it is that you can't talk to anybody, which I love. And it's very, very zen. It's very, very peaceful. You scuba diving forces you to control your breathing and, and to manage anxiety. You can't, you can't be, um, you can't panic. You know, you need to be able to handle very dangerous situations at times calmly or mm -hmm. else you're done. You know, mm -hmm. you, you start panicking and you're 150 feet underwater and it's not going to, not going to turn out well. Mm -hmm. So it has, that's really helped me, um, tap into my creativity. Besides that, uh, I, I play a lot of tennis, I mountain bike, I hike with my dog, I ski. Um, I, I love being outside and I think that's part of you know, my Canadian nature. Mm -hmm. And what you said about diving is really interesting because um, although there's, um, I'm not even sure there's less of a risk, but motorcycling is very similar because you can't talk to anyone. Many scuba divers that I, that I dive with actually also ride bikes. Maybe the risk is a bit, a little bit less drastic because you don't, you're not in danger of drowning every second. But your attention has to be on the road, and you cannot pay attention to anything else. Mm -hmm. Even if you're riding in a group, you, you can communicate through hand signals, but it's pretty limited. And sometimes taking your attention off the road for a split second can mean the difference between wiping out and going through a curve. Right. So I, f I find the the parallels very interesting. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I, I think it's uh, it makes sense that so many people uh, are attracted to both. I, I think that uh, motorcycles are probably a lot more dangerous than scuba diving. At least my wife lets me scuba dive. She does not let me have a motorcycle. It, it depends it's, on how you ride. Statistically speaking, probably yeah, yeah. because um, you're dependent on other people. Yeah. And a lot of drivers don't pay attention. So. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's what I hear from everybody I know that mm -hmm. that bikes. Um, so what would be um, the accomplishments so far in your life that you're the most proud of? Um, well, I guess my top accomplishment is uh, I just I feel very, very blessed with the family that I that I've formed with my wife and my kids. I couldn't ask for a better family unit than I have mm -hmm. right now. It's uh, it's it's just it's amazing um, watching kids grow up under under your uh, parental control and turning into people that you really respect um, professionally I am very proud of the fact that I've been able to um, employ a number of people uh, throughout the years and and offer um, an experience that I believe is very valuable to their to their growth as professionals and I, I often get emails from, from firms who thank us for 
our jobs board because it has connected them with people that have really made a really positive impact on their own practice. Mm-hmm. So those those are the uh, the the accomplishments that I'm that I'm most proud of. It's nothing to be ashamed of at all. Um, so we're getting on to the last couple of questions and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, what is the legacy you would like to leave? And so I'd like you to do a little mental exercise. I call it the deathbed visioning, where you just picture yourself on your deathbed and what is it that you would have liked your life to be or to have accomplished in your life? Is this a professional and a personal? You answer it however you want. You know, it's funny because when I, I, I ask that because my priorities have shifted since having kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, my priorities are definitely more with my, my family than they are with my, my work um, at this point in my life. It would have been um, my, my top priority was my work hands down before I when, when I was just a single guy doing, doing my, my thing. So um, I guess personally, I want to on my deathbed I, i think my only regrets might be that i have if if i don't travel and experience as many diverse cultures as possible i think traveling is is one of the best things you could possibly do i know that my time that i spent as a young child traveling was so much more valuable than the time that i missed in school mm-hmm. um, during those those weeks and i would like professionally i would like to um, have a legacy of making a positive impact on the architecture community and um, helping to bring architecture to the to the mainstream. These are great goals too. Uh, last question is a bit a little bit more uh, lighthearted mm-hmm. and uh, stones or beetles? Beetles. I, I, I love the stones and the beetles but uh, I think the beetles are, are later beetles for me. Not the early pop beetles. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? You know, I every once in a while I go through phases where I listen to the Beatles a lot. And um, I'm, I've not gone through one of those phases in, a, in probably over a year. So I'm going to have to uh, rack my brain. I think that it was, they came at a very important time in history. It was, it was one of those moments where it was like, it's, it's almost... It almost seems like there was some kind of greater force that put, you know, these four people together that were not only very talented on their own, but just worked together to produce something so new and important for the time in history that that impacted such a huge number of people and such a diverse range of types of people. I liked how they uh, they had a social conscience later in, in their career that they that they um, fought for by leveraging their popularity and their fame. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. Well, Paul, I want to thank you very much for uh, your time. I think it was a great interview. I hope yeah, we can a lot of fun. continue the conversation in the future. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hey again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Oktari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore TO, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.